Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this event, Writing an Activist Life. My name is Catherine Collins, and I'm a fellow here at the Life Writing Centre. We've got three wonderful panellists with us today, but before I introduce them, I'm going to begin with a brief message from Elika Boma, the director of the centre, who should be standing here instead of me, but sends her apologies from a fabulous literary festival in Perth, where she's reading from a special edition of her novel, The Shouting in the Dark. Um, I feel like I'm reading a telegram at a wedding. <laughs> Uh, but Elika asked me to say that she's thinking of all of us here today and wishing that she could be part of the discussion too. To quote her, she said, All the lives I've written so far, biographical, biofictional, have all been about activists and the costs and fallouts of their single-mindedness, both one of their greatest strengths and yet their limitation. And Elika's thoughts on writing about activists how we might write about lives characterised by single-minded determination to right a wrong and the costs and consequences of their activism, get me off to a great start introducing this discussion on writing an activist life. A significant challenge, I think, is one of language and translation. I say this with an awareness of where we are right now, the City and University of Oxford, where we write, teach and communicate with one another, primarily in the English language, and an awareness as well as of Oxford's influence on other places. Of course, the activists we might decide to write about could come from around the world. I mean, my current project, for example, grapples with Spanish, Portuguese, Bengali, as well as English texts. But there are other kinds of languages and translations as well. One of my subjects wrote a book with one page on this side in formal academic Spanish, and the other page in the, the um, colloquial language of the people who lived in the Caribbean coast in Colombia. So different, same, same basic language, different kind of translation. But a notion that's particularly interesting to me and in the context of this very literary life writing center, particularly significant, I think, are ideas of literary merit, of beauty and poetics which may or may not increase the chances that a particular story might gain influence. In our workshop earlier today, this is where this, this idea came from, beauty of expression was described as a form of currency in writing activist sense, writing activism. Which brings me to the question of writers ourselves. When skilled writers, skilled biographers write the life of an activist, we might bring with us this kind of sparkle, and we hope we do, from our literary skill and perhaps our reputation. An example of this comes from collaborations like the Refugee Tales, where very famous literary authors write the stories with of refugees. Having a talented writer or poet write your story might bring attention, a ticket into literary festivals perhaps, but what else? We might ask, what are the consequences of this kind of activist writing? Who and what is it for? Who benefits and in what way? With those questions hanging in the air, I think it's time to introduce our panel. This evening, Karin Amatmukrim, Margareta Jolly and JC Niala. Karin is a writer and a novelist. She's published six novels, a children's book, plays and several short stories and essays. She's currently writing a biography of the Dutch 
Shiremese writer Anil Ramdas to be published in 2020. She has also committed herself to writing a history of Suriname to be published in 2023, so a busy woman. <laughs> um, we're very fortunate also to have her with us in Oxford this term as a Torch Global South Fellow. Margareta Jolly is Professor of Cultural Studies at the University of Sussex and directs our good friends, the University's uh, Centre for Life History and Life Writing Research. Her work has focused on auto-slash-biography, letter-writing and oral history, particularly in relation to women's movements. She directed Sisterhood and After, the Women's Liberation Oral History Project, in partnership with the British Library, and her next book, which I think she's going to be making reference to today, is an interpretation of this work. It's called Sisterhood and After, an Oral History of Women's Liberation in Britain, and it'll be published by Oxford University Press this year. JC Nyala is an award-winning uh, screen and stage writer, a cultural producer and an activist. She's gathered stories and engaged with audiences from around the world, and her work has been featured on the BBC, CBS in the US, and ABC in Australia, among other media outlets. She's performed live at the Tate Modern and the Hay Festival. Her film, Wazi FM, which again, I think she's gonna be talking a little bit about today, features lesser heard stories about urban refugees it's won several awards, including an EU award for promoting peace and cultural understanding. Each of our panellists is going to speak for around 10 or so minutes. Um, and then afterwards, there'll be plenty of time for discussion and questions from the audience. So now I'm absolutely delighted to hand over to Karin. Thank you. And to my surprise, I just found out that there are two other Surinamese people in the audience which never happens, hello, because we are not with many, I can tell you that. There are not too many Surinamese people in the world, so I'm very happily surprised. And I, I also just learned that they know my subject, Anil Ramdas, personally, growing up in Paramaribo. Anyway, <clears throat> welcome. Um, I'm coming to the end of my fellowship here at Oxford, unfortunately, and I've had the most amazing time. Um, currently, I'm working on uh, a PhD research in the form of a biography, as was told, uh, on Anil Ramdas, who was, a Dutch, uh, who was a Dutch writer and journalist of Suriname, Hindustani descent, as we call it. Um, so a little bit about uh, Anil. Um, in his work, for television as well as for no, uh, national newspapers and uh, progressive intellectual magazines. Um, he showed himself to be a keen thinker on subjects like identity and uh, ethnicity. And his rather short life can be read like a restless journey, maybe of a writer looking for an all-encompassing um, answer to questions about civilization and identity. A journey, a journey, unfortunately, that found an early end in his suicide in 2012. And today, um, in uh, Torch, we've been uh, discussing activist lives and movements um, um, from the Grenfell Towers in, in North Kensington uh, to the suffrage movement in the 19th century. And I realized that my subject, however, was not an activist per se, nor did he consider himself to be one. What a study of his work could do, however, is say something about the predominantly white intellectual field in the Netherlands and its reluctance to deal with black or post-colonial voices. 
When Ramdas started his career in 1985, he was applauded for his unscrupulous and often quite critical views of the Surinamese and also the Dutch society. However, under the changing political climate of the late 90s and the 2010s, his work was met with considerably less agreement. As conservative ideologies grew more popular in the Netherlands, Ramdas's views on multicultural society were seen more and more by a growing part of the intelligentsia, thank you for helping me pronounce that, um, as politically correct whining that was part of a culture of victimism. victimism. Slachtofferschap, we call that in Dutch. Um, Ramdas started drinking more, and slowly but surely he lost his influential position in the media. He was an alcoholic as well. So he started drinking more and he lost his influential position in the media and he committed suicide on his birthday in 2012. Now the in memoriams that were published after his death all more or less came to the conclusion that his demise was due to his alcoholism and other personal problems. And it was said that at a certain moment he fell outside the spirit of times. And the editor-in-chief of the uh, magazine that he wrote for said that Ramdas, and I quote, was stranded on reality, unquote. It is this reality to which um, she refers that I'm specifically curious about. With this study, I hope to shed some light on what constitutes this particular re reality that made a writer like Ramdas shift from hope to despair. And in the interviews that I've collected with his former colleagues and friends, it is often mentioned that Ramdas was disappointed. And I wonder what exactly constitutes this abstract notion of disappointment or disillusionment. Some have said it was a matter of failed ambition combined with alcoholism. However, I'm interested in another reality than the one depicted by his contemporaries, a reality that is maybe more nuanced and more difficult uh, to measure, a reality more specifically that to a certain extent is shaped by the fact that Ramdas was in his time, one of the very few people of color in a dominantly white environment that seemed to be quite characteristic for the Netherlands. Um, when Patrice Cullors, the Black Lives Matters activist, visited the Netherlands in 2016, she stated in an interview that she was glad not to be living in the Netherlands because black people here cannot easily escape whiteness. It was a quote. I hope that my research will partly show how texts that are specifically critical towards the Dutch, like Ramdas's texts, are read and interpreted, and also what the backlash is uh, that writers like Ramdas suffer from. One of the central questions in my research is what a study of his life and work says about the Netherlands of the recent past, um, a time when major political shifts proved to be of direct influence on our thinking about each other and about ourselves. And the shifts in the public debate that Ramdas has been observing since the early 90s have led to this bleak political climate that we know today. For instance, in 1997, he wrote, I quote, <clears throat> in the past five centuries, it has always been the whites who went into the world. Now the colored people come to the white world and few can get used to it. The nervousness of such a society can silently turn into panic, tension, and fear." Unquote. 
So with my research, I hope to not only capture the life of Anil Ramdas as an individual, but also shed some light on how he as a migrant writer published his work in the Netherlands during a time of political turmoil and how the context of his work had a direct influence on him personally. Um, questions that are central uh, to this <clears throat> and um, that I hope that we touch upon today in the panel as well um, are um, what does it mean for a black writer or writer of color to open up his world to a white or Dutch audience, what the repercussions are, how a post-colonial intellectual finds his place when he is nowhere at home, and what it means that the wor very work and thinking at the intersection of identity, race, and society is seen as a political act, who in the end is allowed to say what. So in conclusion, I would say that what's most interesting about my research in the light of the subjects that we're touching on today, uh, writing an activist life, is how a writer like Anil Ramdas, who strived to depict something of a universal human experience and who had never deemed himself to be much of an activist, is considered by the rest of the intellectual field to be too political and too activist anyhow. And I think that the dominant interpretation of Ramdas' work as political and activist suggests that the only objective human experience would be white and Western. And I hope that looking at the Dutch intellectual field through Ramdas as a person can provide some insight into the dynamics between writers of color and the context in which they write. Thank you. Thank you for that very inspiring beginning. Um, well, I'm, I'm quite inspired in general by this topic, um, having been rather struggling over quite a few years now to write not just one life, but the lives of 60 um, women's liberation activists um, who lived and struggled and campaigned in the UK um, between the 60s and the 90s. Um, and I think it might be familiar to this audience, but I've been trying to work in the tradition of the collective and relational life and seeing individual lives within a network. I think this is a great tradition of feminist life writing. It's maybe actually a, a great order and command of feminist life writing. Um, difficult to do, and um, I'll, I'll tell you how I am trying to do it. What I did have to help me do this was a great number of oral histories, um, including um, the Heart of the Race uh, collection at the Black Cultural Archives, Feminist Archive North and South, Trade Union Congress Equal Pay Story, Lisa Powers' Oral History of the UK Gay Liberation Front, the Brighton Transformed, just finished uh, Oral History of Trans Community in Brighton, the Women's Liberation Music Archive, um, the Unbecoming Men collection of men who were supportive of feminism in this period, and most of all, the British Library Sisterhood and After Women's Liberation Oral History Project. And that collection, I had the privilege of directing and um, working to create with the British Library between 2010 and 2013. So one thing to say is there is actually a great resource out there for any of you thinking, do I need to do interviews? You may want to do interviews, you may want to collect your own oral histories, but I think it's, it's worth also beginning from the, the great resource that already exists. 
and using the radical archives in general that already exist for writing radical lives. Use the arrows. Use the arrows, use the arrows thank you. <laughs> OK. So Sisterhood and After um, was essentially collecting 60 lives of women across that period. Um, and these are just a few of the faces. But of course, instantly raised the question of what is a feminist? What is an activist? What is a womanist? Of course, now we very much want to know what is a woman. So <laughs> there are immediate questions around the, the, the very beginning of the, ter the terminology involved. Um, and we have tried to showcase not just the oral histories um, as they were recorded, which are all available at the British Library, but the questions involved in the methodology of creating that oral history. And some of these very fundamental questions around the, the women's movement. So here you have a little clip from Ellen Malos, who was a key figure in the Bristol area, um, on how do you belong to a movement that didn't have any formal mechanism for belonging or signing up or registering, which is the nature of many of these kinds of radical movements. So what is it to be in the movement if, had, you know, where does the movement begin and end? Um, and I very much like that. She actually talks about Germaine Greer as a question, a question around her. the most famous feminist of this period, but actually who I don't think anyone thought was in the women's liberation movement. Um, and of course, there are questions of movements during this period. Um, much debate about class and race and whether this was one or several movements. And I think the consensus is these were several movements that um, sometimes worked well together and sometimes didn't. And there was a great deal of debate, obviously, around how to create a sort of shared platform. Um, so quickly coming to um, questions that I uh, fa faced and my personal responses to these. One of them was the question of whose life both at the moment of recording and then at the moment of writing. Then there's the questions of definition and, and, and uh, um, style and identity. But there's also a particular question, I think, around representativity, given that this kind of movement it was, is so very much against the idea of the special, the star, the leader. So it sort of overdetermined the problem of who represents a movement and how you put an individual into a collective life story. And of course, there are questions of form and style and aesthetics, which I won't go into because of time, but are passionately interesting. Um, and media, and I know the next speaker is going to talk about that and the, the power of the visual, I think, and the, the difference and affordances of um, working at multimedia as well. Um, here quickly to mention Claire Hemming's challenge, which is around ideology of writing um, the feminist and the women's movement itself. So she, I think, rather powerfully gives us a warning not to go for the progress narrative structure. It, it's all getting better, but equally not the decline narrative structure. 
Um, and she talks about the politics involved in both of those, which are racial, class, um, you know, there are, there are actually questions around which movement gets foregrounded in which structure. So that was another thing I tried to bear in mind. And of course, ethics throughout. So these were my personal solutions. I tried to situate these lives within the social generation, not just the social movement generation, to allow people um, to belong to, I suppose, wider, wider historical determinants, for example, war or migration, not just the, the particular questions involved at the, the, you know, around equal pay, for example. Um, to let people be people as well as activists, to try to be intersectional and holistic. So I try to weave in, just for example, the men's movement along and inside the women's movement. And I try to think about the black men's movement and the white men's movement, as well as the black men's women's movement and the white women's movement, and many other things. That, of course, again, changes some of the, the kind of beginnings and ending points. Very, um, yes, many questions around that. As well as trying to involve a bit of humor and a bit of geography and some attention to the oral of oral history. Oh dear, I'm really running out of time already. <laughs> okay, so I was um, quite inspired by an earlier book, or rather it's an earlier book, an earlier writer, but about um, the suffrage movement, which was not at all biographical in style. And I, I liked this sociology, actually historical sociology, precisely because Olive Banks showed me how to try, well, at least to try to be very scientific about the question of who becomes an activist and why they become an activist. Um, so she took 98 what she called leading feminists of the 1870s through to 1920s and did a lot of number crunching, um, including what kind of class origin and what their occupations their parents did and or the, rather typically in that period their fathers did um, where they married etc etc and she comes up with this wonderful quote here that mostly women who got involved in the suffrage movement which of course was very diverse we're not reacting to a personal situation of despair or frustration, but a response to an intellectual tradition of social and political reform. Now, of course, there were some who, were, who did get involved because of personal feelings of oppression or despair. But I was really, actually really challenged and really stimulated by the idea that maybe a lot of it is what kind of intellectual, political ed education you've had. And I therefore tried to use her method with the 60 women that I was looking at. And I felt a similar thing came out. That actually what predicts activism more often than personal despair or feelings of oppression is having a strong moral education, including in religious settings, having encouraging older mentors, being in political and, and conducive social networks, Having the time, therefore, of course, not so surprising that many students are the core of activist movements. Um, you know, I know we might say how much time does a student have, but comparatively. Um, and I just felt this is actually a whole different way of thinking about an activist life. 
Here's a picture of one of the women that we interviewed. You know, she was well connected. She was actually daughter of an MP, and she's she's one of the better known feminists of this period. Um, not to say she didn't suffer. She she definitely had. Anyway, I won't go into her particular life story, but skipping through the years of activism because of time, I'm jumping to the other end of the life now to the biographical consequences, which Katie mentioned at the beginning here. So. Looking at the life trajectory of, of many of these activists, we see many did actually pay a price for doing all of that activist work and struggle, went into typically helping professions, episodic non-traditional work history, often with economic consequences. However, there was quite a few, there was definitely also a trend of upward mobility, particularly for those who had come from more middle-class backgrounds or who, had, who were from you know you can imagine had come in with certain kinds of capital different kinds of capital um, and there was a great deal of shame around that and i found that very interesting feminists extremely judgmental of other feminists who've done okay or, or, or very ashamed that they've done okay and i wanted to sort of ask is that wrong is it is it wrong to to be okay in late life um, i think i think no i think it's about how and how enabling you are of other people's success. And of course, much of this was overdetermined by Thatcherism and very particularly housing policy. So many feminists had bought property in early life and that was basically why they were doing okay in late life. Well, we know this is nothing particular to the women's movement. And of course, there were great consequences on love, childbearing, sexuality. A quarter of a million of women in the UK today, I think we could say, have become lesbian or queer because of the women's movement. They weren't before and they were afterwards. That's actually Jane Trace's finding, which is also quantitative. Anyway, I won't go into all of the other things because I want to get on to my last little point, which is writing a feminist death as well as life. So here, very interested in your um, raising the question of whether this death in a way was a political death or had a political, you know, that it was a reflection of a political context. Um, I'm, I'm showing here the obituaries of two of the women we interviewed who subsequently died, you know, having done the oral history. Now, neither of these deaths were tragic. I think they were, they were in late life. They, they were of, of late life illnesses. Um, but what's particularly, it raised for me the question of, I suppose, precisely a good death from a feminist or an activist point of view. Um, and that is partly what Sheila Kitzinger spoke about as having control, having, having a sense of autonomy at the end of life as well as at the beginning of life. So much of the women's movement was about choice, reproductive choice. For example, choice really about who's your, your own decisions about giving life. But Sheila Kissinger also said, as she was very much in her last few months of the interview, I've realized that it's the same question at the end of life. It's about how much choice you have and being able to to see, to see your body as something that you have ownership over. 
So following from the, the, the tradition of our bodies ourselves, and also the tradition in disabled women's movement of seeing the body as something that should be yours to define, not other people's to define. However, and I've put suicide in there in that I'm actually just reading Nancy Miller's very fascinating book, My Brilliant Friends. It's a friendship relational biography where she sort of does moot the question of, in fact, is suicide in certain situations the extreme example of choosing of, of a kind of feminist death? A very sad example, I think, but she's, she raises that question. But I am also, and probably I'm getting to the end, I'm also very um, minded of Lynn Seagal's recent argument and study of ageing and feminist ageing and, and um, the, gender, um, the poli gender politics of, of late life, where she says, actually, we need to not over-idealise the idea of autonomy, because actually just as important to feminism is need, care, and being needed. And she's really brilliant on that. So I recommend her book, Out of Time, The Pleasures and Perils of Aging. And this led me to thinking about inheritance and will-making and you know, feminist giving on and to family, but also to non-biological, non-nuclear family, to community. So in the end, I finished my book with thinking about a an activist life, at least a feminist activist life, as also about a feminist afterlife and uh, I guess the, the future generations that will inherit those political ideals. So, of course, that's partly a question of commemoration, appropriate remembering, public remembering, um, but I think it's also a question of ongoing private conversations and education going back into who, you know, the, the determination, the de, you know, who, who gets that education um, in the next generation. So I'm very pleased to end with a slide um, from the British Library where they've put the oral history um, into teachers' packs and, um, you know, you can have little themed discussions through the oral history. So that's the end of my talk and thank you so much for listening. People saying all sorts of things, making it sound like it's someone else. They tell me I must get in order, and yet the one supposed to mind me is in there. Maybe that's why this cross cultural relationship has so many problems. They call it freedom of information. When I know an information of Senior Police. It is a fine line in law, and I was constantly aware of his delicate balance. I refer to those papers nowadays as extremely private. You know what, give me up. Go back to your country. Let me be clear because it's actually a bit of a complicated situation. There is only one question remaining at this point. Where is the evidence?
So um, that was a trailer for a film that I wrote uh, called Wazi FM. And it was about urban refugees in Kenya. So I'm going to tell you first a little bit um, about why I ended up writing that film. And then what I was hoping that we would do, because I come, I come to this sort of writing and activist life from a very practical point of view, going into the discussion, thinking about some of the issues that have been raised uh, when we take this on board. Um, I'm also an activist and with great interest was listening to the biographical details. And, and it's true enough for me. I had absolutely no intention of becoming an activist if it wasn't for my parents. Um, how I came to writing Wazi FM was I grew up in what was called an open house. So I grew up with coming home from school to anybody being at home. My parents took in refugees from all over the world, people from Liberia, from Somalia, from Uganda, anywhere there was conflict um, and people needed a place to stay, um, usually in transition before they moved on to another country, we literally lived with them. And this came to a head in the early 90s. Somalia fell, as many of you might know. And my father at the time was building, uh, he was a civil engineer, he was building big roads and infrastructure projects in Somalia. And basically he did what was very typical of him, he actually got out of Somalia as many people as he could. I'll just take you back to that early 90s period. If you came from a Commonwealth country, you did not need to go to your high commission, the British High Commission in that time. You could actually just fly to the UK and the people at Heathrow would ask you, so why are you coming here? And then you could explain your situations and they would stamp in your passport. You know, you could stay for three months so long as you had, you didn't work and there was no recourse to public funds. So mobility at that time was very, very different. Um, the, the kind of rigid controls that we see now were not in place. So this was all going on with my father trying to help, um, you know, literally dozens of people relocate, which they all did successfully. But at the same time, I was in boarding school in, in the UK. And at that time as well, this is again, just to take you back, this was a period before reality TV this was a period before mobile phones, really, all of that sort of thing. And I went to a very traditional uh, boarding school. In the house I was in, there were nine girls and 51 boys. I was the only black girl in the very first term that I was there. And the BBC Community Programming Unit at that time were, were very interested in, you know, what happens in these very traditional schools? Let's have somebody who can lift the lid. And of course, there's no one to lift the lid like an outsider. So they, they gave me a camera and, and an editor, and they said, you know, film your life. And I think they thought I was going to be filming about sort of my experiences, but what I did, I did do that, but I was also very keen to feature the lives of refugees in a parallel story. And actually for me, that was the major story. Yes, I was an outsider in this school, but I was interested in how refugees were being met in the world. So I was about 15 years old, and that was my opening into kind of using film as a medium for activism. To link it back to writing, one of the things that surprised me as a 15-year-old, I thought, you know, even documentaries were just things that were filmed, but actually everything is scripted. Pretty much everything you see is scripted. Um, and that kind of placed the early seeds in my mind about if we want to craft a story about a group of people and have impact with that story, is documentary, is actuality as it is seen, whatever reality is, the most powerful way to do it? So fast forward now to 2013, and um, I was living in Kenya at the time, 
And many people don't really realize that if you look at the top 10 countries in the world for hosting uh, refugees, you know, we, we often think about all of the issues with migrants. Uh, and it's interesting how the language changes. But anyway, with migrants coming into Europe, but the top 10 countries, none of them are near Europe. Number seven is Kenya. Uh, Kenya has um, huge uh, refugee camps. Dadaab is one of the, the famous ones. Uh, and I filmed there when I was 15 years old. And in 2013, Dadaab had grown from a few tents to actually being a small metropolis. And I was saddened and concerned that actually the way that refugees were seen hadn't really changed in my lifetime. And that the flashpoint for me was when urban refugees in Kenya were declared illegal. And it was said that urban refugee, everybody who was a refugee had to only live in camps. And I thought, you know, what are we going to do about the situation? There's a lot more I could say about that, but I felt, I, I felt compelled to do something. At the same time, there were a lot of NGOs looking for people to make documentaries about what was happening to urban refugees. And so I said, well, instead of making a documentary, I'm, going to, I'm happy to do all of the research. And I was embedded with urban refugees, spent talking about oral history, many, many hours recording people's stories. But I said, why don't we make a fiction? Because the thing about a fiction is then we can actually show it at, in any cinema, we can get anybody to engage with it. So initially we made a mini-series, um, and because of the mini-series went well, they were convinced that we could actually make a feature film. And so that's how I ended up writing Wazi FM. Now, Wazi in Kiswahili um, it means open, and there's a question mark after it, because it was like, are we really opening to changing the way we see people? So in the, the two central characters were Kevo, who was a Kenya, young Kenyan man, and Momo, who was a Somali man, and they, they had a radio, community radio station, because I felt the setting of a community radio station would then allow us to explore many different stories of people's lives. And again, talking about who gets to say what and, and, and how you know, things that are received when you're writing about a community. So I didn't realize it at the time, but I actually had quite a difficult job because I had to make it a nice and aesthetic and interesting film that people would want to watch. But I also had to respect the community. They were going to actually get to see the film in the rough cuts and be able to comment on it and see if they felt adequately represented. I also had the NGO who had a very serious tick box list of what they wanted the film to be like. I also had my own agenda about you know, wanting us all to live much more happily together. I know that sounds really idealistic, but that really was my agenda. And so there were all these different competing inter interests as I was writing this film. Somehow the film got written, and I mean really, you know, with all of the things I had to navigate. And I re clearly remember Friday the 20th of September 2013, the film was done. Every, every single person who had to sign off on it, and it was a long list, had signed off on it. Absolutely fantastic. It was going to go ahead. Um, I felt the film explored the nuances. Talking about people being people, I didn't want the characters I depicted to all be perfect and nice. It was about the real messiness of life. Um, the film that I had written um, had an ambiguous ending because I wanted the audience to decide for themselves what was going to happen. And then on the Saturday the 21st, um, my partner, my daughter and I were out for the day um, in a Nairobi shopping mall when my phone rang. And a group of terrorists had actually entered another shopping mall in Nairobi called Westgate, started killing people and taking them hostage. And 
I, the, the rest of the weekend was spent um, trying to make sure that people that we knew who were in in the um, in the other mall were alive. Thankfully, we personally didn't lose anybody, but still, there were many lives that were lost. And suddenly, everything that I was trying to do, and this is something I hope we'll discuss, this idea of the contexts in which we live, they're changing worlds. How do we write and, and do what we do as things change? You know, the world was literally changing over the course of that weekend. And it came to Monday, and Monday morning, the producer called me, um, and I knew exactly what he was going to say. And he said, you have to completely rewrite the film. Because the film that I had written allowed for gray areas. The film that I had written allowed for uh, a complexity of, of views and conflicts. And in the wake of the horror of Westgate, people only wanted to engage with what they felt was black and white. People did not want to completely understandably um, be faced with things that would leave them questioning. They needed something that they could be clear about. But I still felt that I didn't, I wanted to be true to the film. There was also another added complication that because everybody had signed on, if we were meant to start filming in a week's time, everything had been booked, paid for, arranged. So the producer said, you've got a week to rewrite the film. So because I didn't want to lose the opportunity, I went ahead and it was quite a week um, and rewrote the film. So the ending is very different to what the original ending would have been. There's still some of the, the issues that were wrestled with. Um, the film was made, finally, we, you know, incredibly excited. And then, because one of the threads through the film is around corruption with officials dealing with refugees, suddenly we were faced with the fact that the film couldn't be screened initially, at least not in Kenya. So the film started to do, you know, the film festival circuit um, outside of Kenya, as we were hoping that we, we would finally be able to see it. The community were allowed to see it. They felt that it adequately represented them. We had, we had good feedback from the community. But I think in terms of my, my own practice and what the, the experience left me with was when we talk about lives and people's lives, what is it we're actually looking for? You know, I'm very interested in, in what, is it that we, what is it that we hope? Because I think we approach um, people's lives with something that we're hoping that they will give us. And I'm really curious about what that is. And when I entered the process of making the film, especially with, I mean, this, I could literally write two or three books with the stories that I was told. It also made me question my own practice. As I was saying, here is the other who we live with and yet are brutalizing and yet are stigmatizing. And my whole narrative about, but we must all get along. Where was I coming from with that? You know, wh where were also, where were my blind spots? So I think really as we move into the discussion, um, what I, I hope to explore with all of you is what we hope our work, you know, what, what do we hope our work is going to do when we really come down to looking at a particular life and saying that this is the life as we see it and we want others to be able to see that life in that way. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by process, the processes that we've discussed. What happens if you see one life one way, but um, the life is seen differently by others? You know, an example I quote regularly is Nelson Mandela. For his community, he has always been seen as an activist. 
But, you know, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, they labeled him as a terrorist. It wasn't until much, much later that view changed internationally. You know, so what happens in those shifting contexts? Um, and what is our responsibility? You know, I, I remember distinctly when Westgate happened, you know, my partner saying to me, must you even finish this film now that ha what's happened has happened? You know, can you take responsibility for the reactions people will feel when they're encountered with what you feel is a piece of how we should be viewing the situation? Um, I was helped a little bit by a Russian friend of ours who for seven hours um, sat in a closet, not knowing whether she would be killed or not. And when she, she came out and I said to her, you know, you know, what do you, and she said, you know, I have to go and give blood. And we're like, you have to go and give blood? Because that was one of the things that people were doing immediately. I said, but you've just been in this closet. And she said to me, oh, that was nothing. She said, when I was in Moscow, I was once held hostage in my own flat for three months. <laughs> and I thought, for me, I suddenly realized that's, that's why I do this, actually, because quite honestly, the realities that we live in, you know, you just couldn't write them. They're always that unexpected. Thank you.